You know, I've been hearing the message of grace since I was a young boy. <laughs> and, uh, and it set me free. It's what saved my life, was the gospel. Um, but every time I hear it, it's, it hits me again, like in a whole new way, as if, as if I didn't get it, you know, the first time. And I think that's true. I think there will always be ongoing revelation of just how radically good God is um, and that His grace for us is sufficient, but not just sufficient. It's all we need. And there is no life outside of His grace. And so I'm so grateful that we have um, just the team in our, I know it's my biological dad who does most of the teaching, but I'm grateful for gifts that teach and unpack the Word. Um, and uh, I, I've actually found myself in a place of repentance um, to say, Lord, if I've become casual or familiar in any way with your Word, with your presence, or with the fellowship of your church, I repent. Because the reality is it is the most beautiful thing on planet Earth. Uh, the true, pure expression of the church is the most beautiful thing the earth has the privilege of hosting. Um, and my heart this week was just like grieved and broken for so many um, people and churches that don't have that or see that and have been wounded by the church and have been hurt, leaders who are hurt, people that are hurt by leaders, just brokenness. And I look at it and I say, Lord, I know that's not your heart. But you know that uh, you know, just because something an expression might be abused doesn't mean there's not a true intentional purpose for that thing. And so what happens is you see people that are experiencing the brokenness of what church is not supposed to be, and then they get so upset with it that they say, just chuck that out. It's not about church. And I'm, <laughs> I'm hearing so many statements, even from my dear friends who I minister with, who sometimes make statements like, you know, we don't need the church, we need Jesus. And I'm like, well, guess where you're going to find him? Because in Revelation, he's in the midst of the lampstands. Um, and they're imperfect. We've gone through the letters. He actually is addressing those lampstands and he's saying, hey, here's the things I love what you're doing and here's the things I'm asking you to learn and, and to adjust. But he loves his house. And, um, you know, I, I, I watched, uh, I won't say what it is, but I watched this little documentary about uh, some Gen Z um, people that they'd got into a room, some young, young adults, and they began to ask them some questions. And process some things with them about the church and my heart I like I couldn't hold it back listening to them talk about what they'd experienced um, in the church in a negative sense and uh, my heart was so grieved because I just know that's the heart of the father for these people and what set them free in this this time was actually discovering who Jesus is and what he's really like and hearing them at the end of this documentary say, maybe I'll give the church another chance because I realize Jesus is so awesome. He's actually, he's so incredible that he, it's, it's worth it. Um, and when you discover the revelation of Jesus, you get set free from yourself and from others. And that's when the church comes into its true expression, is when it's not based on what I can get from a gathering, but it's based on who Jesus is. I think where we went wrong as the church is that we, we thought church was for us. And so even as, as leaders, there's a tension all the time because of the culture we live in to try and do this and create a space that does something for you rather than for him. And when we, it's funny that when we shift that perspective and know that we come together as the family of God for him, it's where you actually find true unity, where you find true family, where you find true love, because I'm, I'm loving you and you're loving me, not based on what we can get from each other, but based on who he is. And we get filled with a supernatural love that leads us into a true place of unity and so I just want to say I am deeply in love with Jesus, but deeply in love with 24-7, and that's you. And uh, it's okay to be deeply in love with each other, um, because we're going to be together doing this for all of eternity. And if we lose love, we've lost everything. 
If we lose true love for one another, we've lost everything. Even hospitality, a true sense of hospitality comes from a place of true love. And I think, I'll just touch on this before I unpack this, what I wanted to share this morning, but um, I believe that the Lord wants to remove individualism from the church. Um, And I believe He's going to do that through this beautiful word called submission. Because submission is a place where you don't get to choose who you obey. Submission is a word that's linked to lordship. And so when we submit, it means that we, we completely yield to Jesus, to his design, to his authority, to his expression, to his desire, to his kingdom, to his lordship in our lives. And it just so happens that he's building his church and he's given us these beautiful, uh, true expressions of what he wants it to look like. And when we submit to that, you know, this is what's so beautiful. I, I learned this on my journey of what it means to be a son. When you're learning to be a son, you don't submit because you're, you, you think they're right all the time. You don't submit because they're perfect leaders. You don't submit because they get everything all sorted and good. You submit because Jesus wants you to. And what's so beautiful is that when you find your identity in him and not in anybody else, true submission can actually take place. And it sets you free from me and my thing and helps me lay down my life to build the one thing. And I've noticed, and you know, I've had the beautiful journey of doing this with my biological parents. And asked my dad, both of us probably wanted to punch each other several times. Um, and we've had those wrestles, you know, together. But the, the thing is, we've had the privilege of learning the heart of God. You know, most, when we, when we prayed about us coming onto eldership and running with my folks and even taking, um, you know, a more visionary role, it's the weirdest thing when it's your biological parents. But what's so beautiful is that I haven't seen a model like this yet that worked. I haven't seen a model where someone can lead a church, stay in that church, do a transition, and continue to run in those lanes together as a family, um, not just biologically, as a spiritual family. Most of the time what happens is one leaves and one stays, and there's brokenness and all this kind of stuff happens. And I love that I've learned the heart of God in learning to submit, not just to my biological parents, but to them as my spiritual leaders, even when I might not have agreed with the way. And it's funny because I had my opinions, he had his opinions, or they had their opinions. And then what I'd find is that I was wrong and maybe they were wrong. We were maybe both wrong. And God actually turned it into something that was completely different than what we both thought. And even if I thought I was right, it just didn't seem to matter to God that much. So what I'm learning about the family of God, what I'm learning about the church, is that it's not so much about what's right and wrong. It's about what he likes. And he likes honor. That's why I can love my enemies. And I'm truly free when I can love my enemies because it's not about whether I'm right and they're wrong. It's about the fact that God likes love. (laughs) He is love. God likes honor. (laughs) And that's how enemies become friends. Can you imagine a church that lives in that place where we're not divided by what we disagree on? We're unified by the one thing. His name's Jesus. And He's worthy. And when we submit to Him and we we bow... (laughs) And we let everything else that's outside of Christ die so that it's just Him. We can live in a true place of freedom. You know, I don't think it's like Jesus doesn't want us to die in installments. Like our nature and the sinful nature and, and, uh, and who we are outside of Jesus. I don't think He wants us to let that thing fade away in installments. It's a once off death. Die. So it's almost like sometimes the Lord's just going, just die. Die already. Die. Just put it. Finish it, put it in the grave, bury that thing, it's over. 
God wants to minister the newness of life to us. And in this season, that's why we're talking about grace. He wants us rooted and grounded and established in the grace of God so we can truly be sons and daughters. And so I want to say to you, it's like as a church, we have the real privilege as a house of going after these things. Of saying, okay, Lord, it might not be the normal way that we've seen, but it's His way. And His way is actually the normal way. You know, we've, we've, we've had conversations. I know the methods to grow a church. I would have finished preaching 10 minutes ago. But the reality is Jesus never asked us to grow His church. He said He'd do that. So what are the things that He asked us to do? That's where we want to live. He, he wants us to, to be a people that host His presence. He wants us to be a people that, that become a dwelling place for God, that become like Him. Can I, can I make it, let me use these words. The Father sent Christ, the man, fully God, fully man. And what he birthed was, amen. What he birthed was a party, baby. <laughs> um, what, he, what he birthed was the preparation and the building and the unveiling of the corporate Christ. Because we're all going to look like him. That one probably went over your heads. Sit on that one for about a week and let the Lord minister that to you, that when he comes back, guess what you'll look like? And I say you, I'm talking corporately. I know you right now are the righteousness of God. You stand before him holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's what Colossians says. But what he's coming back for corporately is actually a group of people that look like him. That's incredible. Anyway, so today in 20 minutes, by grace... Um, I want to just uh, share a little bit about around the blueprints of who we are as 24-7 Church. And, and um, you know, next week we'll, my dad will carry on unpacking grace and the foundations of grace. But um, I want to just take time uh, today and, and maybe in a couple of weeks' time just to really lay out who we are. Um, that if you're a part of 24-7 Church, you know exactly what you're a part of, who, who we are as a people and what we want to go after as a family. And... Um, I, I don't believe that what I'm sharing this morning is unique to 24-7. I have no desire, and we as an eldership team and as our leaders and deacons, we have no desire to uh, build something that is unique and, and our brand and our style. and our, That's not what we're after. What we're after is trying to be everything that Jesus wants as a church. It's why the, the name of the church is 24-7, because we just want to be His, be what He wants all the time. Um, it's, we're not after some unique brand. And so um, the Lord spoke to, to us as a team and has given us um, these blueprints of what, how to build and how to go after a culture um, that would host His presence in this way. And so I just want to share a few thoughts um, and, and just give you a little bit of uh, expression to what we're about and who we are so that you know that without a shadow of a doubt. So if you can turn to Acts chapter, let's start in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a few scriptures and, uh, and I just want to pull out a few things that will give us some, some context and expression. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see the result of the Holy Spirit upon the church and what they look like as a people. And it says this, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Everybody say devoted. It's a strong word, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The fellowship, that's getting together, being together. They devoted themselves to that. 
If you don't know what you're devoted to, I can promise you you're devoted to your job. So take that same commitment and put it into this connection, being together. It's that same devotion. That's what it looked like. It says, and all, uh, sorry, uh, to the teaching of the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, say day by day. I hope you saw that one. Day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, there it is again, those who were being saved. So here's the things I want you to see. Number one, devotion to being equipped and to being together. That's why we do what we do, okay? Then it says, they also were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Now, it's really difficult for all of us to pray over each other and together in a space like this. It's why we have other contexts like home groups where you can be together, like having coffee and, and connecting and praying together. Yes, there's a really cool coffee shop down the road the children and I went to. Um, but praying together and, and breaking bread, breaking bread together in the homes, communion. That's why we do these things in our, in our home groups. There's signs and wonders. There's awe. Uh, they're, they're together, there's a unity, they have all things in common. They're even selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. These group, this group of people are selling their stuff to make sure everybody's got what they need. That's powerful. And day by day, attending the temple, so they, they have these corporate gatherings. They attend the temple together where they can all be together in one space. It says day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. So we know it's corporate and it's in the homes. It's, it's different uh, expressions, and it's why we never want to center church life around a Sunday. It's why we have a heart to see our home groups flourish and the prayer room and other expressions that, that build a rhythm of life as a community. This group of people that are in this room, we should be doing life together. But that doesn't happen because one or two or three individuals go off to doing life with everybody. It happens by everybody doing life with everybody. That's how it happens. And then it says, um, I love this, that they, they committed to the temple, committed to breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this, this beautiful community looks like getting together corporately, getting together in the homes, and making sure there's food involved in all of it. That's my kind of community, right? So let's do a lot more food. It says, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord, the Lord added to their number daily, right? Those who are being saved. So there's this, there's this expression of this community. They're, they're looking like something because the presence of God, the Holy Spirit's upon them. And this expression literally stewards growth. It doesn't manufacture it. It stewards it. It's a, it's a safe place for God to add to. And it's authentic and true growth because it's true transformation and salvation. Okay? Uh, if you look in Acts chapter 4 from verse 32... It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's where we're headed. It's not communism. It's the kingdom. Are you with me? It's the kingdom. It's where, it's where mine, what's it? Mikasa sukasa. It's, it's what's mine is yours. And it's, you know, it's only in the West that that's a foreign concept to us. One of my favorite things about the Middle East is going into a home, complimenting somebody about their jacket. This happened to me. Nice jacket. It's yours. No, I don't want your jacket. No, please, please. It would be my honor if you have this jacket. And this is a group of people that have nothing. So that's normal to them. 
in comparison to what we understand. Inconvenience doesn't exist in the kingdom of God because Jesus is more than enough. Inconvenience only comes from, a, from a, an understanding of lack. I'm only inconvenienced if you can take something from me that I won't have after you've taken it. That means I've, I've disconnected myself from the source. Most of Joburg's problem <laughs> is that people are so busy that the smallest things inconvenience them, and so it disconnects them from family. If we deal with inconvenience, we enter the reward of family. Awesome. <laughs> Say that again. I can't. It just came straight from the throne room, man. <laughs> I'm going to go listen to that on the recording. <clears throat> and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They sold their assets. <laughs> That's wild, man. That makes no sense on an earthly level. There's people in need in the church. Sell your assets to take care of them. It's like, but that's my plan for retirement and for, you know, a comfortable life. And it's interesting because all throughout the New Testament, there's zero comfort except through the Holy Spirit. It's just not there. Anyone who follows Jesus, not comfortable. It's why the Holy Spirit is the comforter because his work is uncomfortable. So if you're seeking comfort, you might not be seeking his kingdom. If we're chasing comfort, we might be actually taking our eyes off of what Jesus is doing and looking at our own lives only. And we have to realize our lives are actually fully given to the kingdom of God. That's why what my mom released over us earlier, that, that uh, being set free from that provision burden. The only reason why we carry that is because we stopped making Jesus Lord and made ourselves Lord. Because he's provided, not, not you, right? And now there's this beautiful man, and this is what I want to highlight, verse 36. Um, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I want you to recognize this real quick. I'm just going to tell you that I'm probably going to go to quarter past 11, then I'll set you free, okay? Cool. <laughs> if you need to go, go. I've, I'm not um, offended if anybody has to leave. But it would, be, it would be foolish of me to not honor God's word just to make people happy, right? Are you okay? Cool. Now that made everybody feel guilty if you leave. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I'm good at this, right? I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm just teasing. So, so here's the thing, right? There's this man. His name's Barnabas, which means encouragement. Can I tell you, we need more encouragers. Like people are chasing all the other stuff. Encouragers, man. There, and I'll tell you why. So here's this guy, Barnabas, and he joins the church, and he's so rocked by Jesus, and he looks and he goes, the mandate on the church is global. The mandate on the church is we need to go beyond Jerusalem. We need to see the church taken care of, and we want to see this thing advance. So what does he do? He sells his asset. He sells his field, and he takes the, all of it. <laughs> this rocks me. Takes all of the money, and he puts it at the apostles' feet. That's, that's like you guys selling your assets and bringing the cash and laying it at the feet here. I would feel weird. You would feel weird. weird, weird. But what are they doing? This is what, what really rocks me about Barnabas. It wasn't about control. It was about my part to play as my yes. 
So he left the stewardship of that to the, the apostles and said, you're accountable. But I know that God, this is God's structure and how he's put this thing in place. There's a way that this thing unfolds. My job in this moment, and by the way, Barnabas becomes an apostle later on as a fu- in function. But right now, he's just, he's just loving Jesus, loving the church, and he sells a field, lays it at the apostles' feet, and goes, whatever, whatever the church needs, whatever to advance the kingdom, let's get involved. I want to be a part of this. He, he invests his life into this. Now, what's crazy is you jump across to Acts chapter 11, and this is a couple of years after, and the church at that time still hadn't left Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you know, the mandate that Jesus gave us was Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And for 10 years, they stayed in Jerusalem. <laughs> so, you, you know, you look at that and you go, man, I'm so grateful because even the early church got it wrong sometimes. Um, so that God's got so much grace for us. But they stayed there 10 years, and God was doing amazing things in Jerusalem. But actually, I'm just going to offend you, church became a little racist in the sense that it was a Jewish movement up until that point. But Jesus said it was for everybody, right? And so what happens is persecution comes. Now, Jesus doesn't send persecution on his church. But this is what happens when we begin to live the Christian life. Persecution comes. It's promised. They hated Jesus. They'll hate you, okay? Encouraging word. So Stephen gets uh, martyred and stoned, and persecution hits, and there's fear in the church in Jerusalem, so much so that they run and scatter. So in Acts 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So the fear hits them so hard. Now, I don't know if you know Antioch. I've been there. It is very far from Jerusalem. Remember, they didn't fly or drive. They walked or ran or sat on a donkey. So you're talking weeks of travel, weeks and weeks of travel. You have to be seriously afraid to, to do that. Leave everything in Jerusalem and just keep going as far as you can to get away from the danger. And so they end up in a place like Antioch, and they, at that time they'd only spoken the word, the message of the gospel, to Jews. Okay? But now listen to this. But there were some of them. We don't know their names. We don't know who they are. But they're legends in heaven. <laughs> That's you and me. Just every day, lovers of Jesus, being obedient. This little group of people, men of Cyprus and Serene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the the, uh, Greek-speaking Jews, sorry, Greek-speaking non-Jews, is what I meant to say, so the Greeks, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And now listen to this. So they step out in boldness, and they preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says, the hand of the Lord came upon them. And the Amplified adds, it says, the hand of the Lord is the power and presence of God. All God was looking for was their yes, and he came on them in power. That's what God wants from you, your yes. You know what boldness is? Yes. When we pray for boldness, we're praying that God would strengthen our yes to him, that nothing would cause my yes to waver. I want to stay devoted in my yes to you and what you're doing. So this, these group of people step out, preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and the, the power and presence of God is upon them. And it says, a great number who believe turn to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So now there's this, this report comes to Jerusalem, and they go, whoa, some of our guys scattered out of fear, and they ended up in this place called Antioch, and some of them began to preach the gospel to Gentiles, and revival broke out. People, a large number of people got saved. There's healing signs, wonders, miracles that are happening. We should probably send someone there because leadership is important. There it is. We should probably send someone there to father this thing. Who should we send? 
So I imagine they're looking around the room of there's the 12 apostles and the guys that have come through, been there a couple of years. And sitting in this room who's been devoted and just faithfully loving Jesus and serving the church for probably around about 10 years is Barnabas. And all he does, he's just, he was nicknamed Barnabas because he's an encourager. He was an encouragement to the church. And they're looking around the room, who do we send? And they, they look at Barnabas. Let's send Barnabas. Now, why send Barnabas? Let me tell you why. Because Barnabas sold a field for the kingdom, sold his asset, sold his retirement plan, gave up what would be his earthly financial future for the kingdom of God. And God looks at that and he goes, you sell the field and just trust me with it. And that qualifies you or sets you apart to take cities and nations for the kingdom. Your little yes to what I asked you to do 10 years before actually set you apart and prepared your heart to steward whole cities and nations and regions coming to know who I am. Not only that, but I'm also in that building a, an apostolic father that will pioneer something of the redemption of destinies that others refuse to look at. You go, what are you, what are you talking about? They send Barnabas, and Barnabas goes there, and he, he recognizes the grace of God. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Okay. Now, when the Bible says, and a great many people, it means lots, lots and lots of people. So the church is growing rapidly, right? They don't even have a leadership structure in place because God's doing it. But now they're recognizing, okay, we need the apostolic to build so that it becomes a community that can reach other regions and nations. So they send Barnabas, and it says this, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is what I love about Barnabas, and this is why this is part of what we want to be as a church. Barnabas has been faithfully serving as an encourager for 10 years, and he gave everything he had to see the church advance. Now they recognize there's an apostolic thing on his life, and so they send him to Antioch uh, to go and father a movement. He gets there. He sees the grace of God. This is the Lord. This is revival. It's growing. Hey, I remember there was this guy whose name is Saul. And he actually was killing and persecuting the church a couple chapters earlier, chapter 9. And he goes on his way to Damascus. He has this encounter. He gets saved. And three days later, he's preaching the gospel. Three days. So there's no disqualification of who can preach the gospel. You get saved. You start preaching. Everywhere you go, he starts preaching the gospel. He comes. He goes. In, the story is that he actually goes into the desert, has a, an encounter with Jesus where he receives the grace of God. God speaks to Saul, Paul, and says, I've called you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he comes to submission. He comes to Jerusalem to submit everything he experienced with Jesus to them to say, is this the same Jesus you walked with? He submits it. He had, I mean, when he writes about it, he says, I knew a man who went to the third heaven. He's talking about himself. Paul had these heavenly encounters and the, the, he was, he was, living in that realm with God in the wilderness, completely set apart for him. And what he, the first thing he does when he comes out is he submits to the church. And guess what the leadership do? That's awesome, Paul. Thanks so much. Um, I don't really know what to do with you. So Paul begins to just preach on the streets. And within two weeks, they want to kill him. So the leadership goes, okay, we don't know how to deal with that. Uh, Paul, let's send you home, back to Tarsus. So they send Paul home. 
He submitted to them. Here's this revelation of grace. They recognized, no, that's God. That's true. Everything you're experiencing is true. But we just don't quite know how to handle you. So in, in our struggle as a leadership, we'll just send you to Tarsus. So they're not even like perfect leaders. They send him home. And some historians or theologians will say up to five years he was sitting in Tarsus. Right? But Barnabas goes to Antioch and remembers this man who submitted to the church and came to, to Jerusalem with a mandate to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And now God is breaking out in the Gentiles. And so what does he do? He comes, sees the grace of God and goes, I'm going to go after that man's destiny because he belongs here. So instead of taking his moment to be something, he lays that down to go and fetch a young man named Saul, who's going to be Paul, walks all the way. Here's another thing. Tarsus is not exactly close to Antioch. I mean, it is if you, nowadays, but if you were to walk it, you literally walk all the way up past Iskender, all the way to Tarsus. And then, firstly, you, there's no WhatsApp or phones, right? So you get to Tarsus, and now you've got to find him. So you're talking quite a while, probably another couple of weeks, before he can get him and get back to Antioch. And then he gets back to Antioch. You've heard me share this before. He gets there. Now, remember, most of the people that are there that started this church are there because of, him, because of Paul. Because he was ravaging the church. He was killing Christians. He was a murderer, just so you know, murderer. So something in Barnabas, he's caught something of the heart of God as an encourager. To go and fetch a murderer who's had an encounter with Jesus, whose life has been changed. Bring him to a community. And then, I always tell the story like this, and maybe you've heard it a million times, but this is how I picture it. Barnabas gets back to Antioch and he goes, guys, I found him. I found the apostle to the Gentiles. I found the guy that God has called to lead us, and he's going to pioneer and, and equip us. Um, and so uh, the good news is he's here. He's with me. The bad news is that he's Saul of Tarsus, the guy who ravaged the church and made you run for your life for weeks and weeks, lost everything you had in Jerusalem and found yourself accidentally in Antioch. What is it about this community that receives Paul? It's a community that sees the destiny of heaven over people's lives and will fight for that. That is not going to judge people according to the flesh, but will look at the heart and say, God, is, what has God put inside of that person? We want to see that thing come to life. The church needs more Barnabases. I believe that Barnabas was Paul's spiritual father. I believe that Barnabas was a man who wanted to see sons equipped and raised up to do what God's called them to do. It's why when uh, Paul and Barnabas have a dispute over John Mark, Barnabas fights for John Mark. And he goes, no, no, he, he is good. And Paul's going like, man, Paul's like, I kind of relate to Paul sometimes in a sense of like, he seems quite driven. Like, get out of my way, let's get things done. Like, he didn't want John Mark to come with because John Mark was sick. <laughs> it's like, he's sickly and he slowed me down. Leave him behind. <laughs> we got to keep going. Right? And, and I think when Paul was younger, if, you, if he was a murderer, if he was so zealous and passionate about the law that he would kill Christians, imagine how zealous and passionate he was with the love of God in terms of seeing the gospel preached to unreached regions. He was, he was set. I mean, he writes in Romans, I'm on my way to Spain. Now, Spain at the time is the ends of the earth. Like that right now would be like, I'm going to start walking for Tokyo. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like Paul's, Paul was so given to this thing. He's like, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to give my whole life. Seeing as I killed all these people, I mean, he lived with that. 
and then came into his identity as Christ, where he found the righteousness of Jesus, walked in that, and then said, I'm going to give my life to see the gospel preached to all, all creation. So his, his desire was, I'm heading off for Spain. So now Barnabas fetches and brings him in, and it says, for a whole year, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what you see here is there's an equipping to be in Christ. Everything that Paul received and Barnabas was, was taught as well. They're equipping and training the church, the grace of God, the message of the gospel, who we are in Christ. So much so that they become something as a community that society looks at them. And the only way they can describe this group of people is little Christ's. The reputation of Jesus had obviously traveled, and so they knew, you, you guys kind of act, sound, and look like that man that they called the Messiah. Little, you're, you're, like, you're like little versions of him. This is what this community looked like. And then what's so beautiful is that context sets it up for the prophetic. It says, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's something about this context that the Lord trusts for the prophetic. So God trusts the community in Antioch for a regional prophetic word because he trusts Antioch to steward it well. This is what we believe God's building in 24-7. A group of people that will not be living for themselves but will have completely died to themselves, given to Christ, fighting for the destinies of heaven. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters working together in our city as Christians, demonstrating what it really means to be like him and in him. And at the same time, creating an environment for the prophetic, so my dad was sharing earlier, where we can steward the word of the Lord, not just for our lives and for our families, but for entire regions. Because Agabus comes, releases this word and says, hey, I'm actually giving a word for the region. This is what's coming. And what's so beautiful is the leadership of the church. They get the disciples together and what they discuss is, okay, how are we going to respond to this word? And what rocks me is their response was generosity. So one of the marks of 24-7 church is generosity. And it's not because it's about money. It's because it's about heart posture. And so what you see here is they do this, and I love this one little part that we sometimes skip over. It says they determined each one according to his ability to send relief. Everybody played their role, but it wasn't measured. It's not this Joburg mentality of like, I'll only give if I can give enough that makes me look good. I'm just not in a financial place to give because if I give what I actually can give, it's going to look so small and I don't want you to think that. I... No, just give according to your ability, right? So we see this happen and they send it to the elders. There's leadership again by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Jump to chapter 13. <clears throat> and thir chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And it says, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius of Serene, Menaean, uh, and Saul. So you see this group, and you've got prophets and teachers, and we know that Saul and Barnabas, they carry this apostolic mandate, which we're about to see. So in a year, they had established this diverse, beautiful leadership team, and there's five of them, and three of them are going to stay, and two of them are going to go. There's something about Antioch that's prepared to send their best. 
There's something about Antioch that are not about, like for example, there's so many churches today where I guarantee you if, uh, I was actually having a conversation with a pastor recently, we were saying he noticed when, if he doesn't preach in a while, the attendance drops. It freaks him out. He's like, man, I noticed if, if I don't preach for a while, the attendance drops. And I'm, I'm not shocked. It's not just one. This is, this is a culture that can happen when we, when we build in certain ways. And, and I believe the Lord is redeeming the church and bringing us back to a true expression where it's not based on, on giftings and people. It's based on who Jesus is. There could be no preaching and, and the church should still be <laughs> packed, right? Um, and so, so they send... They're going to send uh, Saul and Barnabas. But now listen to this. It says here, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now that word, litogeo, you've heard me preach this before, but it's important to lay these foundations. Um, litogeo, it's, it's where you get the word liturgy, which is that priestly duty or priestly service. Litogeo is, the, this expression is the new covenant expression of the people of God ministering to the Lord where they're worshiping Him, loving Him. So Antioch didn't set out to be missional. They set out to be a presence people. And when they set out to be a presence people, they created an environment where the Holy Spirit could commission. So they're loving the Lord, worshiping. And by the way, they're also fasting. Yay, there it is in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they went back to it. In other words, the presence of the Lord, ministering to the Lord, it's, it's what ignites the mission and the mandate. It's what sustains the mission and the mandate, and it's the goal. Everything we do is centered around ministering to the Lord. <clears throat> and then they go. It says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and then we see the book of Acts comes alive. <laughs> now, here's what I want to say. I'm trying to find wording for this, but you can see it over here. There's three things that we're trying to build as 24-7 that I believe is just it's all through the Bible in the New Testament. One, apostolic community, meaning we don't live by the culture of this world. We live by the culture of heaven, and we're actually on a mission and a mandate to establish the dream of God wherever we are. And we want to see it lived out in the church and then from the church into our city, right? Apostolic community. I'm calling it apostolic people. A priestly rhythm of life, number two. It's a rhythm of life, not a Sunday service. It's a rhythm of life of, number one, having personal intimacy and relationship with Jesus, daily encounters with Him. It's part of our vision statement. But then secondly, corporately, paying a price, a joyful price, to come together and minister to Him regularly, right? I call it presence people, wanting to host His presence. And then the last one, we have a global mandate. We're a local church with a global mandate, our heart is to be a local church that reaches our city, but we also want to reach the nations. I don't believe the church can truly be the church unless she takes responsibility for those who have not heard his name. I'm, I, I, I am so for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's, that's the Bible everywhere. But I think there's a problem. We're too casual about the fact that more than half or around half the population would be classified unreached. As a church, I'm, I'm like, Lord, I can't see um, Paul today just going after growing uh, a movement or a church and uh, trying to fill rooms and fill. I think he, this, is, this is the kind of stuff, I know it certainly does for me, but I can imagine it keeps him up at night. 
I can imagine he's thinking about these things, dreaming about these things, going, there are whole villages and cities and regions and places that don't even know him by another human being's mouth. And so we see it, man. There's this mandate. And what's beautiful is throughout Acts, they start in Antioch, they get sent from Antioch, and they keep coming back to this church, Antioch. Now, if you look at the New Testament, you can trace... Uh, majority of, of the New Testament and how the rest of the world got the gospel to this little community. Without Antioch, you don't get the gospel. Without Antioch, you don't get Paul. And if I can go even further, without Barnabas, you don't get Antioch. This is why God loves spiritual fathers. God wants to raise up fathers who are not about their own thing, but about the kingdom of heaven. And literally their joy is to encourage and champion sons. That's what we want to be as a house, who fight for the destiny of God over sons and daughters. Commission them and release them into what God's called them to do so that we can see more, more people reached. Because it's interesting that even though Barnabas and, and Paul had that disagreement around John Mark, later on Paul writes and he goes, hey, send me John Mark. He's good for ministry. In other words, I believe Paul later on realized I was wrong. And, and over the years, I've learned how to be a father. I think Paul was on a journey of learning how to be a spiritual dad, and he had Barnabas to look at and go, wow, he fought for me. He fought for John Mark. Now I can fight for Timothy. I can fight for Epaphras. I can fight for Titus. I can fight for these sons and raise them up and commission them in what God's called them to do. Do you see what's so beautiful about this community? So now those three things, that global mandate, uh, I just put their global people, because here's what's beautiful. If we're an apostolic people, we're, we're living in the dream of God as a community to see our city come alive in who God is. We want people to know Jesus. You know, I've changed my language a little bit. When we say we want to transform Joburg, let's just make sure we're talking about people. Because I think this weird message crept in uh, under the guise of, of um, or the disguise of kingdom, where it was like, we need to transform our city. I might be stepping on toes here a little bit. I believe Joburg will be blessed because of the believers being here, but I don't think it's your eternal responsibility to make Joburg right again. But I do believe it's your eternal responsibility to preach the gospel to those who don't know him. We want to see Joburg transformed because people come to know Jesus, and the byproduct of that is that Joburg will be blessed. Are you with me? But it's the dream of God. It's a presence people. It's a people that are given to Him after His presence. They want to host the presence of the Lord because it's His presence that transforms. Your life is not transformed because of what I preach or what my dad preaches or anyone else in this house. Teaching invites. Presence transforms. When we preach and teach and equip, it's an invitation to come into something, but it's only the presence of Jesus that will change your life. It's why I cannot manufacture an encounter for anybody, but you must seek the Lord for yourself. And when you seek the, the Lord, receive Him and believe Him, you come into a place of knowing. Are you with me? And the global mandate, a local church with a global mandate, it's a group of people that might not carry right now a word of the Lord to go to the other side of the world, but we do carry responsibility to stand with them, praying, sending, and commissioning those who are called or who are assigned. Just as much as we commission the workplace and, and, and what God's doing in those things, we, we're about our city and we're about the nations. We're about our neighbors, our neighborhoods, and we're about the nations. It starts with our families. It starts with our friends. It starts in our city. It starts with everywhere we go, but it's also the fact that there are whole regions 
that have not heard the gospel. Last night, I, I was so moved, I got really emotional because I found out that Syria is open. Now, maybe you're sitting here and like, and? Well, you're talking about an, a country that's been ravaged by war for 11 years. It, it is basically completely in ruins. Um, more than two-thirds of the population no longer live in Syria. There are now refugees all over the place. But there's a, a whole group of people that are still there. And it was closed off. And I think there's still a struggle now. But America at this point in time is, is, is probably the nation sending the most uh, missionaries. And, uh, and Americans were not allowed into Syria. And so what we saw, and I've witnessed this being there, is you've got this whole um, awakening of missions now hitting the Middle East again, which is so powerful. We need to see that region touch. But nobody was going to Syria. I tried as well. We, we had little conversations and things to get in, and, and the way to get in was really difficult. They'd have to smuggle me in, and I was just starting to go like, whoa, this is like movie stuff. I'm freaking out. Um, and so the Lord's had me praying and waiting and, and saying, okay, Lord, your timing and when and what. Every time we go to Antioch on the border of Syria, it's like you can feel Syria is like calling that. And now it's open. Maybe not necessarily safe, but it's open. And so it's like suddenly a group of people in Joburg hear of a nation that majority of the people probably haven't even heard about him. But they've had dreams, most of them. And God's just looking for messengers with beautiful feet. Spiritually, not, not, I don't think there's such a thing as natural beautiful feet. <laughs> That's just my opinion. And, and God's moving on His church to, to care about these things because it started there and it's going to end there. I really believe we're going to see a move of God in that region. Oof. We're already seeing it, to be honest, but it's, it's just going to get more and more intense. Um, and I'm not even, as a church, I'm not putting it on us that every single person that belongs to 24-7 church will go, but I am asking us to care. I am asking us to, to say, Lord, as much as we want to carry the message of the gospel for our city, for our lives, we also want to carry the message of the gospel for those who've never heard it before. This happened to, to me personally just because we started praying regularly and asking for his heart. You know, in the early days, I remember um, Krista and Ali and them, they used to go on these nations trips, and I'd go like, that's cool. I wonder, like, what they do there. And then I began to just, like, pray, and prayer started to hit our church again. We would pray and ask the Lord for his heart, and then suddenly you start to care and feel things for people you haven't met, places you've never been, regions where you don't speak the language, and you're going, why do I care so much? Why do I watch a documentary and weep? Are you with me? Um, and so this is why we're doing what we're doing. And it blows my mind to see 24-7, the size church that we are. Look at how, I mean, we've been into Turkey now over the last two, three years, four or five times. This year, I'll have gone in twice. And we're taking a team now in, in October. We'll also be going to Iraq. We're going into Australia. We're also reaching our, our nation, going into little, little towns and places like Uppington. You know, it's easy to, to do Joburg, Durban, Cape Town, Bloom. But Clarksdorf, you know. <laughs> so 
we're going to take time as a, as a church in the future to unpack these things, but I want to just like put language and scripture in our hearts that the grace of God is not just a message that makes you right with Jesus, although that's incredibly powerful, but it's also making in you a bride for his glory, a body for his name, a dwelling place for his presence. It changes your perspective. It changes the lens through which you're living. It changes the reason you wake up every morning. It changes what you care about. It changes how you worship. And I was just encouraging our team this morning. The Lord was just speaking to me around. Um, there are two realms, natural and spiritual. And uh, we're called to live in and from the spiritual realm. But when you do it the other way around, when you live in the natural and you're trying to get from the spiritual realm, it's quite a tiring place to be. Because you're always reaching, reaching, reaching to get something out of that realm and pull it into the now. But that's not how we're called to live. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places, meaning our identity is firmly established in Him and who He is. And we can live in that place where the unlimited riches of heaven are ours because of Him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and now we're one with Him, which means it's been given to us too. So now my faith and, and what gives me strength and courage every day is in Him, not in what's happening around me. And my, my heart is Psalm 24-7. Lord, as I lift up, my heads to, lift up my head to see you and behold you, I actually open up the gateways and the doorways. The church becomes the gateways and the doorways for the King of glory to come in. Now I'm actually the doorway between those two realms. And this is a whole different preach, and I'm not going to go down this road, but I want to introduce you to the language and the concept, and we'll begin to teach on this in the future. But the way the glory of God is going to cover the earth is through the church. We're not crying out for God to do some external thing where, like, something colorful is going to just arrive, and then, like, it's there. No, we are the vehicle for the glory of God on the earth. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the church is going to carry the message of the gospel and the presence of the Lord to all these places. And with our interns, we've been teaching on how worship and prayer is central to regional transformation. And it doesn't make sense to our earthly minds, but it's, it's a supernatural thing. Because you, you have to start in the spiritual realm. Are you with me? It's why, it's why we go and we worship. It's why we go and we pray. And we start there, and then you begin to see in the natural things unfold and God moves. It's why you can have people go in, worship, and pray, and something happens in the atmosphere, and then there's a period of supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles that draw people to Himself. Whenever, whenever you lift Jesus up, He'll draw all men to Himself. So that's where it starts. It's so simple. That's why you go, why are we doing uh, extra prayer and worship times here? Well, because if we can lift Jesus up in our city... Imagine all the churches just took responsibility to do that. Let's just lift Jesus up. That's why we're partnering with other local churches to worship. Because when we lift them up, He'll draw all men to Himself. Do you get what I'm saying? So God wants to give 24-7 um, the blueprints, and He is giving us the blueprints, uh, of what it means to be a 24-7 people of His presence, a 24-7 bride for His glory, a 24-7 dwelling place. A global people. That's why we added that word global because it just helped me shift my thinking from just me and my life and God helping me to realizing God is in love with His people and I want to partner with Him to see that happen. So some of you, maybe you're in the church right now and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in terms of the assignment but I, I'm, I feel like a Barnabas. I'm just, I, love, I love encouraging people. Well, I guarantee you for those 10 years, I don't think Barnabas was going, one day I'm going to father a movement that's going to reach the ends of the earth. I think he was just being faithful. 
Loving Jesus, loving the local church, loving people, sowing into the kingdom, being a part of what God's doing. And that actually qualified his heart or prepared his heart to be someone who could steward a move of God across the world. You know, we often look at what we have in Acts is the the expressions of Paul, but Barnabas went too. He continued. Um, And so that's beautiful. So every single one of you have a part to play in the family of God. And as a family, with every joint with which the body is supplied, that's you. The body builds itself up in love and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You'll find these scriptures in Ephesians. So something changes in our hearts when we realize we're a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And I'll just say one last thing. Um, this is really an introduction. We'll, we'll do more in the future. But <clears throat> familiarity stops you from receiving. So when you become too familiar, you stop receiving from that person. If you're, if you're too familiar with the presence of the Lord and too just casual with whatever, this is what we do, you'll find your time with God is getting more and more dry because you've stopped receiving. It's the same way. If you're too familiar with your wife, you lose connection. Connection is an intentional thing. It's the same with the Lord. It's the same in the church. I watch if I become too familiar with the church, you lose connection. If I stop being intentional with relation, if, I'm stop, if I stop being devoted, you can lose connection. And then you wonder, people go, I'm feeling isolated, I'm feeling this. All the lies begin to come in. It's because familiarity creeps in. So my heart is for us to walk in what God has for us as a church. Let's make sure that we guard our hearts from familiarity. I can't receive from my parents or my pastors or my leaders if I'm familiar with them. It doesn't mean I can't be close and have relationship and true connection, but familiarity becomes a hindrance and an obstacle to me receiving what God's actually put on their life. Are you with me? So I'm encouraged because I, you know, this week, just allowing the Lord to simplify things in my heart again, and sometimes life just gets loud. It has been loud recently, and I know I've chatted to a lot of you, and there's lots going on. But when we simplify and we come back to the word of the Lord, we come back to what he spoke over us as a house. We come back to what he said to you and your heart of your life. And we begin to walk in the assignments of God, the call of God, the purposes of God. Then there's life again. And there's rest in that place because now it's his momentum. If we have to manufacture momentum as a church, then the, the outcome is up to us. But if, we're, if we wait on the Lord, yield to his voice and obey him, then the outcome's up to him because he created the momentum in the first place. That's what we want as 24-7. So I love what God's doing in this house. I love what he's doing in your life. And I'm excited uh, to keep growing as a community authentically and organically. Um, And so my encouragement to us this morning is that God has a plan. He has a dream and we're a part of it. So as a local church, it's worth it for eternity to invest your life into what he's building. It's worth it.